Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Life, people, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine. It's the premier free writing magazine on the Internet. It's got articles on writing, you know, the craft of writing, the business of writing. But we also focus a lot on just the writing life, you know, how to get by as a writer, wake up every day, make up stuff. Write about it. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. We write about it. We help you with it. My blogs, the articles, it's all there. We also feature video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genre. Right now, we've got my interview with uh, Damon Swade, president-elect of the Romance Writers of America. He writes gay romance. So that's one genre. Next week, next month, uh, we've got my interview with Donald Moss, the literary agent and also author of writing the breakout novel and a bunch of fire and fiction Emotional craft of fiction. Yeah, different kinds of writers. doesn't matter. We talk to them all about writing. In fact, my interview with Donald, I just posted it on YouTube, so it's up there. You can check it out. It'll be on author probably tomorrow. So if you want to – that's a great conversation. Don had a lot – I've been wanting to get him for a while. Uh, He's a fellow Writer's Digest author uh, like me, and it was a great conversation. It was everything I could have hoped for. So you can check all that out at authormagazine.org. And, of course, we're funded by the fabulous – Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication. <coughs> Excuse me, since 1955, you know, they have a conference every year. It just wrapped up. It's in, uh, it was in, in September. But you know what? They're already offering the Leap of Faith registration. What is that? Well, we don't know which agents and editors we're going to have yet. You know, we just, uh, it takes a while to figure that out. It's a little too early for that. But some people know they're going to go. That's right. They just know they're going, whether uh, – whether there's regardless of who we have for agents and editors, if you're one of those people, sign up now, you get a discount, and I believe I believe you get to get two uh, meetings, uh, two pitch sessions, not just one, I think. But I know it's cheaper to leap of faith. You see, we're rewarding you for just trusting yourself and going for it. Go check it out at pnwa.org. It's a great organization. A member, uh, even if you don't live in the Northwest. When we have our monthly meetings, like I'm going to be doing a monthly meeting. Yes, I will. I believe in November where I'm going to be talking about the personal essay. See, you might like to hear that. Maybe you don't live in the Northwest. doesn't matter. It's all going to be online. So you see, you can, you can listen. It doesn't matter. That's the beauty of the Internet and joining the PNWA. So go check it out at PNWA.org. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Writer's Digest. I was down there in Pasadena for their yearly novel writing contest. I did not get to see... Alice Hoffman's keynote address. I think Andrew Sean Greer was there, too. Great people, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, they are. A couple of Pulitzer Prize winners there. I didn't get to hear him talk. I was off with family and friends. But I did get to meet a lot of cool people. Got to teach some writing. Inspire some. Oh, it was great. Great conference. If you were there and you said hello, hello back to you now. Uh, not going to be much more going on with me for the next few months. Going to go dark as the holidays approach. But more stuff will be happening in the uh, in the winter. Don't you worry. Okay. Enough about me. Yeah, enough about me. I write about myself all the time. Let's talk about someone else. How about Michael Neiman, today's guest? Guest. Singular. Michael has long been interested in the sites where ordinary people's lives and global process intersect. He shared homebrew beer with shack dwellers outside Cape Town. He interviewed the former prime minister of Zimbabwe back when he was still a trade union leader, and he's seen Ed, Eduardo 
Monlane's dorm room at Northwestern University, uh, excuse me, Northwestern University, faithfully recreated at the Museum of the Revolution in Maputo. He had published, of course, four thrillers. I mean, he's a writer. He's not just a guy who likes to do stuff. He's also a writer. Published four thrillers featuring UN investigator Valentin Vermolin. Legitimate business, illicit trade, legal holdings, and uh, just out in June, or no right way. Now, Legal Holdings won the 2019 Silver Falchion Award for Best Thriller at Killer Nashville. And his short stories have appeared in Vengeance, which is the 2012 Mystery Writers of America anthology, edited by none other than Lee Child, and Mysterical E. On the nonfiction side, he's also the author of A Spatial Approach to Regionalism in the Global Economy. How about that? He's with us today. Michael, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Bill. It's really wonderful to be on your show. Thank you. You are welcome. It's great to have you. Uh, well, that's kind of such an interesting biography you have. You're interested in just the world, the the, the small and the large, the the, the individual, yep. and how the big government and economy intersect with that. How? What? When did you discover that was something that was interesting to you? How did you figure that out? Oh, that goes back to college. You know, I grew up in Germany, and so, and I grew up very close to the Dutch border. So going across that border is sort of an early experience of mine, and uh, just was intriguing the difference, even though it was just a few miles. Life in Holland was just different than yeah. in my part of Germany, and just seeing that difference and understanding it, wow. It's just yeah. an imaginary line on the ground, and wow, they have Indonesian yeah. food in Holland, which was just blew my mind, and there was nothing like it in Germany. So, wow. And that was just a few miles, and so that I think that started it. Then I studied political science, and later on graduate studies in international studies, and became an Africanist. That means I focused on African studies, and yeah. did research there. And so, yeah, I just sort of kind of it's just it's just been an interest, a long-term interest of mine. You know, we, I assume you grew up in, in West Germany? Yeah. And so this was, were you this in the 70s or the 80s? When oh, was childhood no. for you? Uh, 60s? Childhood was in, yeah, I was born in 56. So childhood was in the 60s, basically. 60s, yeah. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I interviewed... Uh, a comedian named Hoppy Kirkling, who at the time was described as the Stephen Colbert of Germany, uh, if there is such a person. And he talked about growing up in post-World War II Germany and how long it took for there to be anyone allowed to be funny. That There was no humor scene because it just everyone was so screwed up, you know, from all that they had had to recover from. Um when you were growing up, you described that line. Did you were you still feeling the effects of the the war in the, or was that just something so distant to you that it didn't really resonate? Well, I mean, it it was distant in the sense that I grew up in a rural area, so in other words, there wasn't a whole lot of damage or you know right. ruins or anything like that. You know, and then '56 that was 11 years after the end of the war, right. so things already picked up. Um, so I I did not have any person. I mean, there was the occasional house where you could still see, you know, plaster being 
shot off or something like that. But it wasn't right. really uh, a, a present uh, a present in my in my growing right. up. No. Um, and so you got interested in Africa. What drew, what drew you to Africa? Um, I don't know. I, I studied first in, in Germany at the University of Bonn, and everything there was the East-West conflict. You know, it was just right. going back and forth, and, and I was tired of it. You know, this was now we're right. talking the mid late seventies, and I you know I'm not saying that I had any sense that you know 15 years later the Cold War would come to an end. Not at all. It just didn't seem like that's where the future of the world lay. And so uh-huh. I became increasingly interested in, in, in what was then called third world studies. And then in the late 70s, early 80s was also the rise of the anti-apartheid movement, uh, in, in not just in Germany, but also in the United States, where I had yeah. moved by that time. And so I was active in that, and that just drew me then to this southern part of the continent. Right. So that was sort of a, a seeming, seamless progression, I would say. It seems like Africa is one of those continents, the collection of countries, where the change, it feels like it's happening faster, that there's a lot more change being sort of, there's so much, this turmoil and change and turmoil and change happening. This is based on my distant view of it. I haven't studied it. I just read about it, hear mm-hmm. about it. Um, is that a fair assessment? Uh, well, or is it too broad not, a statement? R- rapid change is not new on the African continent. I mean, the experience of the slave trade, the experience of colonization, the experience of uh, independence, all of those are traumatic experiences in many ways. And we today, people in the West start, well, what are all these foreigners doing here? Well, you know, on the African continent, that happened 100 years earlier. What are all these foreigners doing here? Right, uh, right. We, we tend not to think of it that way. We tend to think of it as European colonizers venturing out, but we don't think of it from the perspective of the people that were being colonized. So, right. uh, so in other words, they've been living with rapid change for quite some time. Okay, so you're studying international relations and global politics, and you're teaching it eventually. Uh, we just yeah. you mentioned that you would just, in fact, you just retired from your job as a professor and you were so you were yeah. teaching was it political science did you or is it something really specific that yeah, it was called international international studies which is okay a, a more in a more interdisciplinary approach to the world so it's right. not just politics but also economics history anthropology and so forth right yeah my son graduated from american university and that is the big that is like the yeah. major at american university um okay yeah. so you're a professor but obviously, this is author to author, also a writer. Uh, all the time, were you all, I mean, obviously, as an academic, you got to write, but I will tell you, it's a very different kind of writing, as you know, than fiction. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Were you always interested in, in writing? I think I've, I've written for quite some time. I, I'm not so sure that I had a desire to write, but uh, education, my, my education in Germany was still very writing intensive. I remember German classes where the German teacher would read us a story, and then we would have to write in our own words what that story was. That was sort of a very common exercise. That's sort of my earliest memory of writing, and also my earliest memory of my teachers, you know, who didn't necessarily have the highest opinion of me, saying, that was actually pretty well done. (laughs) (laughs) What? 
Maybe they'd have the highest opinion of you. Bright guy like you? Oh, well. All right. They just couldn't see well, it. They couldn't that, see the potential. That, that, was, that, that was before. They're, I don't think there's the brightness like that. Anyway, that no. was, yeah, I'm the usual kid who sits in the last row and doesn't pay attention. So that's a big part of my secondary, primary and secondary education. <laughs> wow. All right. So so you wrote a few things. A couple of teachers said pretty good, not bad. How about that? Uh, but this is these were assignments. These are things people were yeah. telling you to do, uh, mm-hmm. asking you to do. Signing. When did you first sit write something that, without anybody asking you to do it? It was just you and your own ideas. When did that happen? You mean fiction or nonfiction? Anything. Anything where you thought Michael. Anything. Well, you said I, yourself. What do you want to write about, Michael? Yeah. Uh, I think my dissertation, that was sort of the first project that I chose by myself. I wanted to write it. I thought it was important at the time. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was sort of the first serious extended writing project that I undertook. I mean, I'd written papers before, and they were often topics chosen by me, uh, especially in graduate school. But you know, they have 20 pages or so, and that's it. So, But yeah, this uh, yeah. dissertation was the first suspended, extended process of writing for me, yeah. And let's see, but but you were doing graduate school in America, in yeah. the U.S.? Okay. And mm-hmm. so you're writing in English? You know, mm-hmm. I, I have English down pretty well. I can't imagine doing two or three languages, but obviously you do. Uh, did you did, did, did you have any qualms about having to write in English since that I assume that wasn't your maiden I, language no I mean I when I, I first came to the United States as an exchange student and then went back to Germany and yeah you know, during that process fell in love with it's a beautiful woman from the United States and we ended up living in Germany for a little while and moving back to the United States and to to her chagrin we always spoke English at home and not German uh. So I had all the benefits of that, and uh, right. And I'm I'm relatively comfortable with languages. In, in, again, in Germany, growing up in Germany, we had to take English, French, and Latin in school. Wow! That wasn't even wow! Option, that was a requirement. Oh, you, you poor yeah, son so. of a bitch. That's okay. Wow. That's, <laughs> yeah, Latin, <laughs> Latin was really hard. Yeah, Latin. I just about killed my brother. I, uh, <laughs> well, okay. So you did the you did the uh, you did your your dissertation. That was your own idea. Uh, but you know, as we said, academic writing is very different than creative writing for a lot of reasons. And so, and I and I've worked with clients or students who have tried to who are trying to transition, and it's a whole different you know business. And so, what when did you first I fiction? Uh, specifically suspense. Like, how did that come bubbling about? Rather, uh, fiction came very late in my life, uh, mm-hmm. really. Uh, I took a couple of classes. I, I was at that point working at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and I took a short summer course with one of my friends who was a Jewish professor there, and then another regular term course with another colleague who was a professor there in creative writing. That was my first of serious structure introduction to creative writing. So basically I have one and a half courses in creative writing and that's it. And I played around with it, but I did not really seriously write anything. I had some interesting ideas, but I never was able to translate them 
into something concrete uh, right. until until uh, we moved to Ashland in 2008. Uh, uh, my wife and I just uh, decided to move here, and I went from being a full-time professor with all the committees and all the other extra work to being a part-time person here. Right. And uh, that gave me some time, and I was lucky enough to join a writing group uh, here. Oh, oh, so interesting. So that, that sort of got me going. And the, the first question was, well, what have you written? And I had written this little bit of a piece, uh, maybe five, six pages, and okay. You joined a writer's first, group based on five pages? Yeah, well, the guy who, who said, let me see it, you know. And right. He, he looked at it and he says, actually, I like this. It's not oh, much, wow. but I like it. All right. So, uh, and that was sort of a, the first suspense kind of story set in South Africa. And so, uh, and that was this interesting experience that I've been carrying in my head for five years. Because I was mm-hmm. I was in Durban, South Africa, in 2003, doing this summer workshop, and was there, and, and went on a little side vacation with my wife afterwards. And we had this I found this interesting location on on the Indian Ocean beach, right south of the Mozambican border. So there's some leftover old army camp from the apartheid days, mm-hmm. and I just did the typical crime writer's question, which is, what if? Right. Right. So, and that that became eventually a little story that then was finally published by this online journal, Hysterical E. Right. Right. So that and was so the, that, that was the first so, published piece you did. Well, it was the first the first short story I ever wrote, and right. it also oh, and ended it, up being published. Yeah. That's great. All right. Wow. And so, so, that's, so you that's so, eleven years ago. Wow. Wow, that's eleven years ago, and so you joined a writers group, and and you were drawn to suspense and mystery. Now, did you read yeah. that yourself? Yeah, I, I read yeah. that. I mean, I what I remember distinctly about growing up in Germany was not the leftover World War II, but it was the Cold War, uh, because yeah. it was genuine, it was real. I lived in what was then the British zone. There was an RAF force base. 10 miles away, so we had sonic booms on a regular basis when they flew their maneuvers. You know, they were regular NATO maneuvers. And right. I rode my bike to school, and that path always went past this Belgian anti-aircraft missile battery. You know, So there was a genuine sense that if the Cold War ever got hot, it would happen right here. <laughs> so, and, oh, so you grew so up... Started, yeah. So you sort of grew up, like, your mind just sort of trying, cause, trying to content cope with that make sense of that wonder about it yeah just as a kid and i I was drawn to spy fiction uh later on not not necessarily as a kid as a kid i was still reading adventure things but afterwards i must say that it was spy fiction john le Carre and len dyton in particular they provided that that mythical or fictional larger image of which i had experienced just a right. little art. Right. So I've always I've always wanted to write something that was international in nature, but I also was not very I was not I was did not want to write a James Bond character at all. Right. You wanted to feel a little uh, more realistic. Oh well, if that I also uh, you know having lived in two countries and two cultures and two continents. 
for significant periods of my time. I, and having experienced the growth of the European Union, which also meant really the elimination of borders, right. I did not want to have a character who was doing it for for queen and country or something like that. Right, right, so right. So that's why I think that's why my my Merlin character is he works for the United Nations. He doesn't work for a specific country. Right. And uh, you know he comes from Belgium originally. It's a tiny country. Yeah. No more access to grind in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so those, those were very specific choices for my perspective. Right. He's a he's a he's really a uh, global citizen in every sense, sort of, isn't he? In in a sense, yes, he is. Yeah. But okay, so um, but all right, so but writing fiction, you know, it's a whole thing. There's uh, a lot to learn. I was just talking to a new client this morning, and I said, you know, um, uh, Flannery O'Connor, the great Southern Gothic short story writer, said, everyone mm-hmm. knows what a story is until they try to write one. And so yeah. it's one thing to read a bunch of books, but then you got to write one. What was your what was the biggest learning challenge for you when you shifted over to fiction? Oh, it's to get rid of that academic tone. Yeah. To yeah. to get rid to get rid of the desire to explain. Yes. You must that, show, I don't tell. The, right? The biggest challenge, right? Because yeah. in academic writing and nonfiction writing what you're doing, what what especially academic writing, is you're laying out the problem, you're laying out the theory, it's all description. Everything. In a yeah. sense. Yeah, uh, and getting rid of that and and letting the action come in. That's that right. Was, I think, the biggest the biggest change. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it. I just, in fact, I taught a class on that at my most recent the writers' conference I was just at, and the challenge mm-hmm. for the fix for the artist for the artist whether you're a poet or a fiction writer or whatever is to leave enough space in the story so the reader makes the connects the dots so the reader. Yeah the wires touch in their mind because you don't want to do it mm-hmm. for them. And, but really as an academic, you, 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 you're almost like a legal document. You cannot leave room in that way. You've got to make sure you exactly. cover every single thing with every little footnote and every, right. Exactly. Yeah. So figuring yeah. out how to have just enough description for the setting so that the reader knows where it is without going into details so that the reader that I'm actually robbing the reader of his own imagination. That's right. right. I mean that's yeah. right. It's a whole that's different a relationship to the reader. There's so much more exactly. it's just it's a different you also the reader reads academ, academic stuff with a different understanding than they yeah. do fiction. So it's is a whole relationship there. So that was the big thing. And how long do you think it took you to, do, do you still find yourself slipping into the academic framework or do you, have you have you uh, totally made the switch at this point. I, I, I think it's an ongoing an ongoing process, let's say it that way. I don't think okay. it's ever be done because all of my novels are set in specific international conflicts. You know, the first one is set in Sudan, the second one in, in Kenya and Vienna, the third one in Mozambique, and the one that just came out, No Right Way, is set in southern Turkey in dealing with uh, Syrian refugees. Oh, so there oh, is always... There's always the attempt, the the, uh, the temptation to explain. It's always there uh, right. because 
far far away places, and your average American reader doesn't necessarily know all or much about no. that place. Right? No. So the, the temptation to explain is always there, and that's always important to just minimize it as much as possible. So yes, that's an ongoing struggle for me. There's there's the this my favorite technique. On my toes. Well, you know, my favorite technique that uh, I learned from Blake Snyder, who wrote. Save the cat, which is sort of this Bible of screenwriting. And, you know, there's the, you know, you've got to, sometimes something needs to be explained. You need to get exposition down. And it's and in, and in film, you just don't have a lot of time. And the same is true for novels. You don't want to spend all this time, you know, laying out. And he talked about the scene called The Pope in the Pool, where there was some movie where there was a lot that involved the Vatican. And they had some exposition they needed to get done. They just needed the audience to know some stuff so the story makes sense. And this was all explained to the viewer uh, while the Pope went up to this pool, which apparently there is a pool somewhere in the Vatican, and uh, stripped down to a, a speedo and started swimming laps while this was, while whatever exposition was being given. And the reason that was so effective was that the viewer could hear the information all the while thinking, oh, my God, look at that. The Pope is swimming in a pool. I didn't know there was a pool. <laughs> and so you're kept entertained by the sort of background, right, yeah. while you get this mm-hmm. information out that's kind of dry. And I think both fiction writers, and I see it in film all the time. I go, oh, they're Pope in the pooling it like there. Isn't that but I think you could do the same thing in fiction. What do you think of that? Does it sound yeah. like something you might try if you haven't already? I, I think I – think your characters, your characters are the main bearers of information. Right. right. The way they dress, the way they work, the way they do things. So in the most recent novel, I have, you know, two female refugees. One is, uh, I mean, they're both single and they live together because single women are always in a terribly dangerous situation. In right. Many right. Countries anyways. And, and and the friend disappears, and the the left you know the woman left behind is desperate to find out what happened to her friend, and so she makes the rounds, but she has to be very careful, and she has to act in certain ways, and you can bring that out by the way she interacts with others, by the way she right. acts with rather That's than right. saying, oh, this is a very dangerous society, I have to be careful. So, you know, it's just it's just a question of doing that. For example, she's invited, they're all living in some tent camp, and she's invited by the neighbor to come over for dinner. And so she brings an orange, which is all she has, right? But right. you always bring something, you know. That's right. sort of part of the custom. So that's just the little gesture right there. And, you know, somebody might read that and said, how nice. You know, and right. not even pay more attention to it. It doesn't really matter, but it's that little way in which you bring certain uh, behaviors into the story. Well, that is more economical than putting up in a pool, I think. And actually, it's true. The fiction, <laughs> also, also fiction. Interestingly, you do also have a little more time. You know, I just come from Hollywood, yeah. so I was listening to a bunch of screenwriters. So, I'm on my mind. All right. Well, listen. Uh, so, you fourth book is is number five being written yet? Oh, it's done. It's uh, already at the publishers. Uh, it's Excellent. Called uh, uh, percentages of guilt, Ooh, and uh, it's actually good. set in, in it's actually set in Antwerp, Belgium. So my my protagonist is called back before he works for the United Nations. He was a prosecutor in Antwerp. And there is something wrong with the last case he worked on. And so he oh, has to come back and he, gets, and he gets caught up in all kinds of 
shenanigans as a prophet. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope things don't go smoothly. Yeah. What fun would there nope. be in that? No, no. <laughs> we, we, I, John, John Irving said, the way I write a novel is I, I find someone I love, I think of someone I love, and then I think of the worst thing that could happen to them. So yeah, and I think what, I think that's the thing how how to how to throw your protagonist into impossible situations. That's yeah. what you got to do. Uh, well, mm-hmm. listen, if people want to learn about you, if they want to buy your book or just find out more about yep. you, where should they do that? They can uh, to buy my book. You can go to a good bookstore in your town. That's always there. The you first go. Thing. Start. They can order it, and if there is no good bookstore in your town, you go to the bad bookstore. And if there's not even a bad one, you go to Amazon. <laughs> good. All right, I love it. And if and michaelneeman.com is that the best place? It's What's Michael, your website? Michael-Neeman.com. Ah, okay. There's two there's N's, people. N i e m a n n. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. And well, Michael, I'm also on Facebook and on Twitter, so people can just type my name in and find me there. Yeah, of course. This is the every, these people know how to find you, but I just like to ask. But yeah. listen, I got one more mm-hmm. question for you. Uh, uh-huh. I wanna, before I let you go, I want you to finish this sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? What has it taught you? Not to take myself so seriously. Oh, interesting. And to let. To let the story, to let the story do its thing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a good lesson, Michael. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Good luck with your next book. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy the next. Oh, oh, wait, what, Michael? I'm sorry, I cut you off. What did you say? And, And enjoy what you have coming up as well. Thanks. Oh, I will. I always enjoy myself. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. Yes. All right, people. Don't take yourself too seriously. It's true. Strangely, just get out of the way and let the story do the work. Story knows better than we do. All right. Well, listen, uh, that's it for today. I'll be back again next week talking to somebody. Don't remember who. Doesn't matter. It'll be somebody interesting because everybody is. Thank you to my producer, Mr. R.J. Jeffries. You're fabulous. And to the rest of you, go find something you love and do it.